Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Can I Borrow Your Mind? This week I spoke to Emmett Kirwan. Emmett is a an Irish writer, actor, playwright, poet, activist. Um, I've seen an interview with him actually where he got described as an activist and he said that he felt uncomfortable about it because he, he sees himself more as an artist than an activist. But I think, I think you can be both and I think he is both. Um, I was so happy to talk to Emmett because he's a he's a really amazing artist if you've never heard of him I really encourage you to dive into some of his work maybe even before you listen to this podcast I think that'd be a great idea um he's been described as a national treasure of Irish arts and culture I was first exposed to him a while ago I was driving in my car and on the radio on Triple R which is a great radio station in Melbourne they played one of his poems it's called Heartbreak and it's um, it's about a woman who uh, gets pregnant and, and isn't able to get an abortion and, and she's a working class woman in Ireland and it's I think really, honestly, it's, it's one of the most powerful pieces of art that I've been exposed to in recent times. Like it's, I, I remember sitting in the car, I pulled over in the car to like, really listen to it and let it all sink in and then I found it on YouTube and it's actually a short film on YouTube and Emmett acts in it um, and he sort of performs it uh, and he also wrote it and it's it's amazing go like if you're driving or whatever you're doing now just pull over and search heartbreak Emmett Kirwan it's in the I'm going to put a link to it in the description for this podcast it's honestly like such a beautiful thing um it won the award it won the award for best short film at the irish the ifta awards which is i guess like the irish version of the logies or the oscars or um the orgies is that it yeah the orgies yeah um emmett has written a bunch of things he's written a bunch of poems um He's got lots of videos on YouTube. He wrote a play called Dublin Old School, which was like, you know, sort of blew up and won a bunch of awards. Um, And then he turned that same play into a feature film, which I watched a few weeks ago. And that's another one I highly recommend. Watch Dublin Old School. It's it's like fast paced, it's edgy, and it's very different to any other film you will see. We talk a lot about that. And I, I knew that Emmett would be such a great guest because I've seen him in interviews. I sort of went into a bit of a YouTube hole where I watched lots of his interviews and I, and I read lots of his work and watched him perform poems online and stuff. And he's he's very clever, very sharp, very on the pulse with society and culture. Um, and so we, we sort of, I had all these questions planned, but we kind of just started chatting and then we like, Emmett just, took us down this really interesting path and I didn't want to like stop it and ask my pre-prepared questions because it I found it fascinating we um we talked a lot about neoliberalism I feel like I've done a few podcasts lately where I've spoken to people about neoliberalism and I'm really enjoying it um and I'm really starting to learn how much I hate personally me myself I hate privatization um we talk a lot about the privatization of water in Ireland and the fight to stop that from happening. We talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about class. We talk about the environment. And yeah, we talk about Dublin Old School and Heartbreak. We talk about some of his work. It's really engaging. He speaks so well. I'm, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. 
yeah, just go, just enjoy this episode. What watch watch some of his videos first though. Um, I, I highly advise you to do that, and then listen to the podcast. And yeah, enjoy. Tune in next week as well. I've got another amazing guest. Um, I'm really happy. It's sometimes you feel like you're not going to be able to get the guests that you want, and then Emmett got in touch and I was so excited and then my guest next week she's amazing as well and now I feel really good about this podcast so yeah onwards and upwards let's keep rolling keep listening um I think it's just going to keep getting better and better this is a great episode enjoy it uh, I recorded this on the lands of the Kulin Nation I want to pay my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait sorry Torres Strait Islander elders past present and emerging and recognize that sovereignty was never ceded in australia the music for this podcast is done by a band called silt check them out and i'll see you next week thanks for listening this is can i borrow your mind episode nine with the amazing the effervescent i don't know what that word means i hope that i'm using that word right i don't know if that's right i want to say like enigmatic or charismatic or something you'll know when you listen to emmett talk you'll be like yeah that's what he means because he has a a real way with language and also with the rhythm and cadence of his voice he is very mesmerizing so here it is this is me and emmett kirwan on can i borrow your mind episode nine see you later Is that? Have no, you got all those is, books in your bedroom? This is. Um, we literally just moved house, so this is like. Right. Should I show you? This is just the front room kind of thing. So right. we used to have. We used to live in this apartment in. Um, well, I can tell you now because I don't live there anymore. We used to live in an apartment <laughs> in Temple Bar in town, which is kind of like the tourist place in Dublin, and uh, it was pretty crazy. So these were all in my sitting room because it was a one-bedroom apartment. So we just moved to a house down the country. So now I actually have a space that I can, that I can write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before. I was literally like Temple Bar is like this kind of, it used to be a place for artists and it was kind of a cultural quarter or whatever it was supposed to be in the 90s, you know, because in the 80s, all these artists moved into it. And then in the 90s, the artists were still there, but they all started getting pushed out and like super pubs start coming in. So I was living in a place, a mate of mine has moved out and gave us this place and he's like, oh, you should take this cheap rent or whatever. But it was like, I'd be writing and you'd hear, you know, down below me, like people singing God Save the Queen. (laughs) Like I say people, I mean stag parties from fucking Leeds. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're like, I was like the old man shouts a cloud, you know, shut yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, yeah. that makes so much more sense now because I was just watching, you've got a couple of videos that reference Temple Bar. Yeah, true? that's and the place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was. I didn't realize it was like a whole area. I thought you were like, like calling it that because there was a pub, a certain pub in the suburb or whatever. There is. This, that, that place, Temple Bar, is like literally the centre of Dublin and it's all cobbled and stuff, you know, and it's kind of, they give it a kind of like old-timey kind of thing for tourists. Yeah. And it's a tourist trap. Like, yeah. there is a pub across the road, or there was a pub across the road from me called the Temple Bar, which kind of changed its name about 20 years ago. So when the tourists roll through, they think that Temple Bar, they're all told, go to Temple Bar. They all think that this pub is, this place, the pub, the Temple Bar. <laughs> which is actually just this kind of like marketing genius ploy yeah, by the owner. So, so you just see, it's literally one of those landmarks. So I'd walk outside my door and you'd get like, you know, Italian tourists and Americans all kind of like <laughs> taking pictures of this pub. And, you know, 
Irish people are really polite, you know, you'd be like, ah, sorry, um, excuse me, you know, and this is when I first moved in, you know, and I was like, yeah, excuse me, sorry, you just, I need to get out of my front door, you know, and then after like five years, like, the fuck am you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, I never said that to anyone, but yeah, literally just kind of like picking people up and moving them, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that bony, you know, going through. <laughs> So anyway, that's that's my Tampa Bar story. Fuck, that's funny. I, even as you're telling me that, I remember because um, I don't know, like I've never been to Dublin, and I don't know yeah. that much about your country to be honest. And I've just realised oh, right. I know Temple Bar is like a they mention it in a song, uh, and you might know it's like this song. It's like this Christmas song, and it's the, by a man and a woman, and they're in New York. It's a, it's you know that song. Is that the song? oh yeah, okay, as big as bars. <laughs> Old. yeah that's, that's uh, a <laughs> mcgown yeah that's the that's, that's the pokes it. that's actually quite nice this fairy tale in new york that's it it's, that's the one i love that song yeah anyway that's like everywhere in ireland at christmas that's yeah like, yeah on loop you know i am um, uh, that's so funny i don't know many irish people but um there's a comedian oh, really? in adelaide over here um called eddie bannon and he one time i did karaoke with him and he was like i'm fucking singing this song and he like belted right. it out and it was it was like a real That's patriotic cool. moment for him yeah yeah there's probably sweet. a lot of irish people in the crowd crying and stuff yeah. <laughs> and, and is is there a lot of uh, irish comedians in in there's in yeah there's a few there's a few um he's he's probably my favorite eddie bannon he's um he's like He's he's one of these guys. He's been doing comedy for thirty years or something, yeah. and um, he's, uh, I guess, I don't know. This will be an interesting thing to talk to you about as well, I suppose. Um, but I feel like he's the kind of guy that has the the talent and the skill or whatever that he could be like a big celebrity, like a famous comedian, if his material yeah. was maybe more like mainstream and more applicable to everyone, but he hasn't chosen to do that. And he like, he makes enough money to just, just be a comedian. And he, he he's on yeah. the radio every now and then. And I really respect him for that. Like he just has stayed true to who he is and he's a there's gun. A lot, he's yeah. so good. There's at a comedy. lot of Irish comedians like that. Even mm. here, you know, there's a lot of kind of Irish comedians who <laughs> like, there's only one broad, like Ireland's not, it's not, a, you know, it's not obviously not like Australia. Like there's only one main broadcaster and um national broadcaster and they're the only ones that kind of could produce a comedy show you know or you know or else comedians have to go to britain mm. or england you know to make it as com comedians uh you know to huge stratospheric success but there's a lot of irish comedians because of the internet they just do what they do and they put it online you know because they know it would never get past the censors it would never get past anybody in rte so they just do their own thing yeah. there's a great thing called or, there's a great there's a great satirical news website called waterford whispers and uh, yeah, you should check it out regardless of like, you know, where you are in the world because it's kind of universal, but it's just really funny. It's just like the headlines. There's like three guys and they just, they write like three articles each a day and they release about like eight articles and they've more, they're bringing online more kind of authors, but some of the stuff is quite esoteric. It's very kind of like niche to Ireland, but it's, um, yeah, I really recommend it. Like it's, it's brilliant. Like that, those guys wouldn't get anywhere near RT because yeah. they're just... They absolutely skewer the establishment and just skewer everybody, you know. But um, it's great stuff. Really funny, really great. Yeah. Um, uh, that's cool. This isn't this isn't where I planned on starting with you, but this is a good this is a good point that you bring up now because I'm I'm interested. Um, 
because uh, you, you you did like Sarah and Steve on RTE, is that right? And yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that. I haven't seen that. Um, but I'm wondering, like, do you find it hard uh, walking that line of like the 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 stuff that's applicable to the mainstream and can be put on RTE? And obviously, as an artist, you get paid better for that sort of stuff. But then also yeah. staying true to the art that you want to make. Do you find that hard? I think it's balance? kind of weird now. It's kind of weird now because a lot of the time you don't really have an option because they don't, they don't do, RT doesn't do a lot of scripted comedy. And so if you, if you were like, when I was in the UK, uh, you know, if you, like I work primarily as a playwright, you know what I mean? As a theater actor. So all these kind of like films or television things I've done, I've kind of been branches out into those realms. Do you know what I mean? Uh, kind of, yeah. They're in almost in isolation where I was doing what I was doing and then I'd go and do this. But because of the nature of film and television, that's the thing that sticks around and people remember, you know, theatre and plays are they're ephemeral, you know, you kind of exist for that moment mm-hmm. and then they're gone. But um, so my kind of experience with it is that when I was in the UK, the UK would invite, like you, the BBC would say to you, oh, you're a young writer. We've got a writing workshop of comedy writers. Come on in and we'll have a chat. And you'll go in, you'll meet them and then they might put you through a kind of like, apprenticeship training type program you know and um the last time i was over there i was, I was writing a thing for the national theater they the national again this is the national theater the uk not ireland they would do a thing where they'd give you six weeks to try and write a play and they give you an office and stuff like that you know and they just have the resources and the bbc obviously has the resources whereas in ireland <laughs> it's just <laughs> like you know you're always kind of going cap in hand and I'm not even like I'm an Irish citizen I'm not even a citizen of like you know I'm not British but you're getting these kind of opportunities from them anyway not to bash but like the with RTE they, they don't have any kind of scripted comedy apprenticeship program so they're almost they're really kind of antithetical towards scripted comedy they want stuff that is um, cheap to make and usually isn't scripted it's kind of like they do a lot of hidden camera shows and they do a lot of kind of you know slagging celebrities and interview kind of shows you know stuff that's really disposable because i think with irish with comedy the stuff that always stands the test of time that kind of like lasts through the years and generations even more so than sketch comedies is any kind of comedy show that has a narrative so you know in ireland like father ted was a is something that people still watch. Yeah. You know, people still watch The Office. You know, I always yeah. think like comedy. So working with, when I went, sorry, this is a roundabout, long about way of saying, we got asked to write Sarah and Steve. They'd already done a show called Dan and Bex, which was about a kind of a middle-class couple from Dorky. And the writer had seen me in a play and had seen some comedy sketches I wrote online and said, look, would you help me write a, a working-class version on the North Side, which is North Side Dublin, but Tala, where I'm from, is actually in West Dublin. So I said, yeah, look, I was on write it, but I said, I'm going to write it based in my hometown. And his original series was brilliant. It was really funny. It was called Dan and Bex, but it was very, each episode was very much about a topic. So it would be like Dan and Bex about Bebo, Dan and Bex about dating cliches in, in South County Dublin. You know, so it was always a kind of like a subject matter and they would mm. talk about it. And that was where the comedy generated from or was generated by. And uh, with Sarah and Steve, it was actually a story, like a short story, like a play, but it was all done in direct address, kind of like Fleabag, you know, where it was like all to camera, you know, yep. but again, that was because it was very cheap to make, you know what I mean? And it was actually the only way I could get a scripted comedy on television, you know, so it was all, it was basically about a couple that make a video diary, kind of like what Snapchat is now, but back in like 2009, 2010, and um, 
Yeah, and so it was a scripted comedy, and it was on YouTube for years. But then the RT player, which is kind of their version of Netflix, that was coming on. And fair, fair play to them, actually. Somebody in there, I think it was a young person, because uh, I don't think the people in Power in, in and RT even know saying Steve was on their television station. <laughs> Somebody, I think what happens is, if you watch something as a young person and it's slightly different from the other things you're watching, you'll remember it. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, that kind of generation that would have watched it 10 years ago are now coming of age in their 20s and they're working in these places. And somebody in there, I'm almost positive, somebody in there went, maybe a young person at 25 went, oh, seriously, we have that in the archives. Let's just put it on the player. So it got put back up on the player and taken down off YouTube. But um, I was proud of it. I think a lot of people, because it was on RT, probably didn't watch it because they were like, I'm not watching that because they just had this kind of idea that everything on RT was shit. But it kind of gained a cult cult following. And I think the fact that it actually is a narrative, it's 10 short episodes, so it kind of comes in around like a a two-hour type film, but it's all direct address. So it's not particularly visually arresting, you know, just to watch Talking Heads. So it's more kind of like an an Alan Alan Bennett is is an English playwright and he does these kind of plays that are all talking head play so it's very much like that it's just like people chatting to the camera about their day-to-day activity you know but it was yeah it was good crack but we got away not to blather on but we got away with a lot of stuff with that and i've talked about this on other podcasts we got away with a lot of kind of a lot of very what what would have been for the national broadcaster risque material it's not risque to anyone else that watches it to be like oh that's funny you know but to i know people in there the senses and stuff they never read the scripts (laughs) <laughs> so, so what happened was I wrote the scripts and they were kind of like around 14 minutes each and they were supposed to be 10 but we were told they didn't care because it was like a disposable 10 minute thing that would go on as a filler between right. two other programs so I wrote them sent them in there was a lot of you know jokes in there just about Irish culture about youth culture about drugs about kind of the state of things and just stories about mad people in mad areas you know that did mad things you know what I mean and uh, I was like they're not gonna they're gonna fucking fight this you know I'm really <laughs> shooting myself before. send it in kept going any notes any notes and they're like no no go ahead you know I was like, All right. so we did two weeks shooting we shot the whole thing edited them now this is an incredible amount of work like to do all this like even just to because editing something and putting all the f- footage together is the main kind of thing and we did it. And there's a thing called picture lock, you know? So you send it in. Uh, let's say the picture lock is on Friday and you send it in two weeks beforehand. You say, look, have a look at these. If you have any notes, let us know what you think because we're going to picture lock it on the Friday right. and you need to let us know. So no reply, no reply, uh, no emails, no nothing. And literally Thursday night at like six o'clock the night before the picture lock on the Friday, we start getting all these like emails and phone calls. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, cause, and I was like, ah, I was like, the older producer kind of explained to me, he's like, oh yeah, they didn't read the scripts and they didn't watch it. <laughs> I was like, this is the national broadcast. I was like, are you for real? I goes, how did I get away with that? Um, now this is, I should say, there's a lot of people working there and it's a very efficient kind of machine, but it was just whoever was running that particular department at that particular time just was like snowed under and just didn't, I don't know what was going on. But, um, you know, so they do, that's not, that's not, how they work on other things. I know that from drama and I know that from the news and the sport and all the other kind of departments in there, but this was whatever was going on at that time. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so we had to furiously go back, re-edit, re-edit like episode, they wanted basically episode three to be episode one. 
because I didn't believe in doing like, you know, a pilot episode where you, the, my idea for drama was, and this is going off, the, this is going off the bar now. You know, when Indiana Jones shows up in the film, you don't know his backstory. He's just Indiana Jones. Yeah. And too often with modern filmmaking, everybody's, you know, solo and all these things like they're, they're constantly kind of, where did he come from? No one gives a fuck. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like you're jumping into the story. Same with James Bond, any of these kind of major kind of characters of cinema and, and, and fiction as well. You know, you rarely get the backstory. You get in late, you know, you know, yeah. get out early expression. So I was just like, right, we just start it. And they just start who they are. And you figure out who they are as you go along. You know, you give, you tease it out to the audience. So of course they were like, no, no, we need like an origin story, which actually happened around episode four. So they wanted us to switch it. And we just said, yeah. And then we never did it. And then we, <laughs> we, we could, we could have, we were told, we told it had to be 10 minutes. And we said, well, what 10 minutes, what do you want cut? And they said, we don't care. Just cut, cut it down to 10 minutes. So we cut it down to the last two episodes to 10 minutes, chopped out about two jokes out of about 20 that they asked us to cut, resubmitted it. And then they never said anything. And then they just broadcast it. And they broadcast it. Fucking so hell. Like, yeah. So we got away with like a lot of stuff. Now, yeah. It's funny. Cause like they, there is another show called the Savage Eye which got away with a lot of stuff as well. I remember going, Jesus, that's like, I didn't understand how they got away with that. And there's a few other things, you know, there's a great show, really good. It's actually like our version of Trailer Park Boys. It's called The Hardy Books. And it's basically these four lads in Sligo uh, just rocking around the town. And it's, they made a movie and everything. I think they made two movies, but that's great as well. That's another kind of thing that got on RTE. And I think a lot of those kind of shows that got on RT are just kind of like, they're given, they're left to their own designs. You know, they're just like, go on, do whatever you want. And there's always a kind of like DIY aspect to it. You know, like it's like, how did this get on TV? And then you go, ah, they probably just kind of, you know, a lot of it just seems like they made it themselves and then just fucking, you know, so yeah. That's my story about Sarah Steve. It's, it's, it's funny because like the, the fact that they don't get checked and then they get on there, then they're the ones that are, you know, probably the, the best shows on that station because they're not going through that rigorous because I feel like on, on a lot of those stations, everything starts just looking exactly the same and absolutely. Yeah. They remain unique. Does it? Yeah. I like now I know that's not the case now. That was like the case 12 years ago or whatever. Um, I know that's not the case now. I think they they have a much more rigorous kind of like way of working and doing it, you know, but they don't have any money. Like everyone's running out of cash like here, but I know that I remember a guy that, was the producer of some comedy show. I was doing a thing in London back 2013 or something. And they got all these guys in. They got actually Ben Wheatley. Do you know Ben Wheatley? He directed um, Kill List and A Field in England. So he, he used to, he was basically, he was an editor on a comedy show called Time Trumpet, which was, do you know the stand-up comedian Stuart Lee? Yeah. Yeah. So Stuart <laughs> Lee was on it and loads of other like uh, Richard Awade and all these guys from like Gart Marenghi's uh, Dark Place. So a real yeah. kind of like who's who of like alternative. Alternative comedy. Yeah. I'm reading, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I'm reading Stuart no, Lee's no. book at the moment and he mentions yeah. this. I'm sure he mentions this. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and he lists some YouTube. of the people that are on it and, and it's all these alternative comedy legends. It's amazing. So, yeah. Like it's a show about, it's a comedy show set 20 years or 40 years in the future talking about television from 20 years in the future you know? <laughs> it's called time trumpet and um but it's like it's fucking just so bizarre and so off the wall and so ben wheatley was talking about that and talking about other things and he was like he just goes 
they he was talking about producers and whatever, like the, the people that commission. Now it's different in the UK. I think they're very smart people and it's different in Ireland as well now. There is very smart people who are commissioning editors. But he was taking a point about time trumpet. He goes, they don't fucking know what they want until you show it to them. Yeah. So they, you know, he was like, oh, what about the new Little Britain? And I remember, I can't remember, the, I'm paraphrasing the entire conversation, but he was like, I'm not fucking doing that. You know what I mean? You know, he's like, and, and his kind of response was, you know, he wasn't the creator of it, but he was talking about Trumpy in general. And one of the producers was there as well. They were like, oh, we want the next Little Britain. We want the next Little Britain. He was like, no, you don't. Little yeah. Britain is Little Britain. You want yeah. the next new thing. Yeah. And so what happens is when they get shown the next new thing, then they want 10 versions of that, mm-hmm. you know? So it is that thing. A lot of the time they don't know what's great until they've shown it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and if they, yeah. So that's why they're constantly looking for new shows. But in Ireland, it's really tough because everything is about what's gone before. Like they've done about, I would say they've done a hidden camera show, you know, where they play jokes on people. I would say they've done a different hidden camera show every decade, twice a decade for the last 50 years. <laughs> you know, and, like, and the funny thing is, all you have to do, there's a really great thing called um, Irish Simpsons memes. And it's just people sending in memes, you know, and you just really see how funny Irish people are. You know what I mean? Just generally, yeah. you'd never see that humor on Irish television. It wouldn't get part. It wouldn't, yeah. the filters just wouldn't go through because they just wouldn't get it, you know? Yeah. So actually what people, Irish people find funny, on what's on Irish television. There's a huge chasm. There's a huge disparity between that. Yeah. Because you know? uh, a lot of Irish comedy, a lot of stand-up, I don't know, that story you were saying earlier about your friend, there's those really great Irish comedians that don't give a fuck and just do what they do. Yeah. And then the other kind of Irish comedy is like, look at me, I'm mad. And they just scream at people for, <laughs> you know, show, you know, it's like, where are you from? Ah! You know, just like <laughs> screaming at people. Like you're like, what's going on? Yeah, so it's uh, it's 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 a it's a shame that it's not represented enough on the TV because I think like yeah, Irish, you know, not to fucking kiss your country's ass too much, but all the Irish people that I've met in my life are like sharp and witty and funny. That's like yeah. the thing that sticks out. Actually, that's actually that's a good question. What like what's that? Why is that? Why is everyone? Um, I feel like a little bit about um, British people as well, but Irish yeah. people to a more of an extent. Um, do you have any theories on that? Yeah, I think a bit, I suppose a bit, as I should say, prefix all this with, this is just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all just kind of the, the, the long-winded ramblings of a writer. <laughs> so take it all with a large pinch of cultural salt. <laughs> um, I think, and this is from spending a bit of time in England, uh, comparatively between the two the two countries, and even a bit. So I was in Australia for a good bit as well. We can chat about that in a bit. Um, <laughs> I think Irish people's sense of humour is usually to tell kind of long meandering kind of stories with no point that are usually kind of like peppered with um, non sequiturs and just bizarre humour. You know what I mean? Like mm. in and out, and then they allow people to kind of add into the joke. And then they'll like they'll pass the ball, you know, in a pub. So it's all about kind of like just who can be the funniest and who can kind of top that, and yeah. but not like talk over each other, you know, just passing it. And people that are funny are kind of they can be revered, you know. People are like oh, get him in or get her in, you know, they're great crack, you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. good, they're good banter, you know, not banter, whatever that fucking word. A lot of people hate that word, but you know, <laughs> just they're good crack, and they, you know, they're not paying the hole, you know what I mean? Whereas I find. 
when, you know, and Irish people are really effusive from the get-go. So you meet an Irish person, be like, all right, man, where are you from? What's the crack? You know, how are you getting on? And they'll chat to you. And then in England, it's, it's very kind of, they're very reticent when they meet someone new. You know, they're like, hello. You know, and there's the five questions of where are you living? What's your, what tube are you on? How long does it take to get to work? You know, like saying like you, you can laminate five questions and just give it to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Here you go. This is how long it takes to get to work. This is what line I'm on. Uh, yes, it's, it's, the traffic's mad. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Because most people are quite, it's from the get-go. And I know some English people say, they go, yeah, but they were kind of saying to me, do you not find that that's kind of fake? And I said, no, I goes, it's just putting people at ease. You know, I said, but they, you know, they were, so anyway, I, I think Irish people are kind of more effusive. They want to get on with everyone. They want to be more chatty and they understand that, you know, silence is death in any conversation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Especially in a pub. And also one of the main things, this is my biggest theory about kind of the difference between Irish humour and in the sense that I said Irish humour a lot of time is, you know, stories without end that kind of are funny or recollections of funny. Some There is some great English comedians that do that, but a lot of time in England in a pub, it's about, they tell jokes. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Here's a good one. And yeah. it's like a joke. And I've actually seen Irish people turn around and say to someone, are you about to tell a joke? And say, hold on to it and shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's like, obviously something they heard somewhere else that's not true. That's, you know, secondhand joke of a joke of a joke. And people, Irish people are just like averse to anybody cracking out. Here's a good one. You know, yeah. in the pub. Yeah, you'd be, re- you'd be very hard-pressed to find. So I remember saying that to a Canadian fellow before, and he's like, really? I goes, I thought you guys would be all about the jokes. I said, yeah, we are, but not like... Not a structured you know, joke. It's, it's this it's happened like, to Thingo, a- and then that happened, and yeah. it's, it's So it's guys story. on a plane, and the plane's going down. That, like, you'll, <laughs> yeah, you'll never hear that in an Irish, yeah, hear that <laughs> yeah. In an Irish pub, and you'll get your wings clipped pretty quickly. <laughs> like, what? Are you telling a fucking structured joke? Yeah, Fuck yeah. So that's, I think that's the thing with Irish humour. It's really sharp. But uh, I should mention, I was saying about Waterfall Whispers, there's loads of guys online. There's a guy called Peter McCann. He's working with um, Waterfall Whispers at the minute. And another guy, Hugh Cooney, as well. They do all these like really random, really weird like jokes. And that's the thing as well. A lot of stuff is very niche, you know? It's very... Yeah. Like, right, though. It's really funny. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting i feel like australia is probably more um more leaning towards the irish side like it's it's, right, it's yeah, more yeah. inclined for stories and then also in australia recently in the last few years there's been like some crazy alternative comedians who have emerged yeah. um there's a guy called sam campbell who just like he'll he'll stand in front of an audience and force everyone to start bowing and and <laughs> and doing these weird gestures and just just fucking off the wall yeah. stuff like that um and then, interestingly, American humor is, I think, such a different thing again. And like, yeah. I guess the biggest difference that I've noticed between Australian and American, and I feel like Australian and Irish are, are same in this way, is that we, we're self-deprecating. Whereas in America, if you're self-deprecating, people think that you've like got low self-esteem. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, they're yeah, like yeah, Worried yeah. about you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's that thing, isn't it? It's like stand up or you know, hip-hop battles like back in the day or, you know, Wall Street traders. It's a real male-orientated, you know, aggressive style. I'll, I'll shout over you. I'll be the loudest person in the room. I think the stand-up is quite like that. Some of it, not all of it. Um, I think some of the writing is brilliant. 
and then some of it's just like you know you know you're like I don't get it but I know like yeah. there's lots of there's lots of like American comedies I love you know what I mean but I do think you're right I think it's probably more uncommon I was yeah. in Australia I found that people on the probably, probably don't piss anyone else now but um, <laughs> I did a loop of Australia about 10 years ago wow yeah so interesting I started in started in Melbourne yep went to Perth yep then went up the west coast to Broome Wow, beautiful. Then went to then went across, yeah, Karangini and all those kind of places and into the desert. And then what's the city that's at the very top? Darwin. Is it Cairns? Is Cairns? Cairns. Cairns. Yeah, so is yeah, it yeah, Cairns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I went then I went down the coast of Brisbane and then oh, back to Melbourne. And yeah, just because there was a lot of Irish people went there in the crash, you know, like in the in the crash. After the crash, like they emigrated. And uh, I had lots of Irish friends there. So I kind of went over. I did I wrote Sarah and Steve. And I had, they had, they were like, oh, we're going to shout in April. And then they're saying, no, it's on in September. So I was like, all right, well, you know, actors have a lot of leisure time. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> and I had a bit of money. Like I probably shouldn't have done this, but I went on, I went traveling the world. I went to Japan and China and Australia and I stopped off in Australia and just went around and kind of met up with any Irish people I knew that were there, you know? And, um, but I, anyway, on the point of humor, I felt that in Melbourne and stuff and Sydney and and Brisbane and that, that was kind of the sense of pe- how people joked. Yeah. And then the further I got up the West Coast <laughs> or towards Broome, I kept on meeting all these like Australian blokes that kept on going, Irish, eh? I've got a good one for you. <laughs> and, I was like, and then they'd tell me this like really random racist artist joke. Always, <laughs> and, I'd be like, and I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm like, yeah. what, what, how do you want me to, how do you want me to respond to this? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was loads of crack. Yeah. And then I went back, I was there in, um, I was in the, I was in Sydney in January of 2018 um, for the Sydney Festival, mm. uh, and actually, I know you were saying you wanted to do the questions. Uh, Heartbreak, the poem. It was part of an actual theatre show called Riot, and um, oh yeah, so I performed Heartbreak in Sydney for the Sydney oh, Festival. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, and it was gas because I remember meeting. I remember meeting some of the guys that I met 10 years ago, some Irish guys. And I was like, no way, you know, and they were like, they came to see the show. And I was just like, it was so, it was kind of, not that it was sad. They're not sad, but in my head, I was like, that's one of the things in Ireland, you know, immigration, you know, it's really every generation that gets it, you know, they almost have to like emigrate. And from 2000 to kind of, well, from the 1990s onwards, we'd actually turned the tide back. People weren't emigrating as much. And then in the crash, like so many of my friends and so many of my generation spread across the world. And I remember being at the Sydney festival in 2018. I met these guys. I was like, Oh, what's the story? And they're like, Oh, you know, they're from Cronin. And I remember meeting them and they were like, yeah, I remember you. And they, they were like, we've been following your work since, you know, I'd left Australia. Cause I think when I came back from Australia, I kind of hit the ground running in terms of writing. I kind of, when I was there, I was like, right, I need to go back and I need to pursue writing a good bit more and kind of like put my head down and try and get like, create my own work and do what I want to do because I was working as an actor in theatre and, and I had quite a lot of credits and I was doing a lot of stuff on TV and stuff but it wasn't that fulfilling but anyway I remember going back and these guys were like I've been watching your work and I was like see and in my head I was like you've never came home you know yeah. what I mean and they were like no no and I was like do you miss it and they're like yeah you know what I mean so I was kind of you know I was like they're happy, you know what I mean? They got opportunities in Australia they probably never would have had, you know what I mean, in Ireland. But Whoa. it was kind of, I remember so many of them saying, you know, yeah, we were, they were only going to be there for six months. Yeah, year. yeah. And then I kind of went, and it's a real, it's a real kind of common story amongst the Irish, you know what I mean? Especially in, in the UK or 
in America and yeah. stuff, you know, there's all these kind of poems and songs about people kind of going, oh, I was just heading over for six months to kind of get me money and then go back to Ireland. And, you know, yeah. so, but, um, but they're happy there, you know. Now, a lot of them have, a lot of them actually, they want to come home. But the situation in Ireland is that there's no houses, there's no, there's, a, there's a, an economy that's essentially, or was before the COVID thing was booming, but um, they couldn't come home because they were, they were priced out of their own country. You know, they can't come home and wow. they can't buy houses, they can't get car insurance, they can't get any of the kind of things that, you know, would have been quite readily available in places like Australia. You know? This all makes me think of just saying, um, yeah, for obvious reasons. Which is just for context for listeners. That's a um, a video on YouTube that people should look up. And you act in it. I don't think you wrote it. Is that no, right? No, I didn't. That was actually the director, Dave Tynan. He's right. also the director of Dublin Old School, the film, mm. and he's the director of Heartbreak, the video as well. And that right. was Dave's Dave's own experience, kind of with immigration. He moved to London, and you know, he was he was like so many people at that time. I think we did that like in 2012, going into 13, and that was kind of the height of it. You know, when people were away because they they essentially what they did was they do it every generation they kind of offshore the youth and they talk about the increasing kind of level of you know it's living standards in ireland but essentially how they've achieved that since the foundation of the state is that they farm out the young people to the four corners of the globe every generation and they tell them you go abroad and then we'll fix the country and then you can come back but they never can come back you know, so they're always kind of betrayed. And Dave was kind of, that was Dave's kind of feel. Not, I'm not saying that's his feelings. That's my own kind of understanding of mm-hmm. what I think immigration is to Ireland. But that was about his kind of, his feelings of upset. And, you know, I remember one of them saying, like, there's loads of holes in the dance floor, you know, around it. What the, what the government did was they, they slashed unemployment benefit for young people. If you were below the age of 25, it got cut to 100 euros. If you were below the age of 20, it got cut to 80 euros. If you were living at home with your parents, you couldn't get it. So essentially, they made the situation untenable for to be unemployed in Ireland. Mm. So instead of having all these unemployed people here, they sent them to the four corners of the globe. And we were lucky in that sense because at the time, there's a thing called pigs. It was Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain were the countries that were the most affected by the bank collapse in 2008 and our bailout was a huge uh, thing that led to our collapse because we had to um, take a loan from the IMF and the tr- we call them the Troika, the tr- DCB and so forth. And um, all those other countries though, they, they weren't English speaking countries. So the ability for them to send their children to the four corners of the globe, you know, the former empire colonies or whatever didn't exist. So it hit them a lot harder. I remember someone saying to me going, we've kind of weathered the storm of that. And I remember going, well, we did because we got rid of most of the young people. Yeah. We sent them to the four corners of the globe. So we didn't, so it's kind of like what would have happened in working class communities in the, in the city center and all around Ireland. People used to have much larger families. And if there was five or six kids, two of the kids might get sent around the corner to live with the granny until they were a bit older. But a lot of the time they just wind up, staying there all their lives you know what i mean they'd never actually wind up moving back into the house so that's kind of the analogy i use for it you know so there's so many people that went abroad they had no intentions of leaving they wanted to stay at home with their families and their and their uh, their friends and these are really the people like the you know the nation builders of you know the future and what ireland had done you know through successive generations is do that to every young person they kind of offshore the youth to the four corners of the globe you know Okay, why um, 
I don't know if this is a philosophical question or if it's a political question or I don't know, but why, why, why are they doing that? What's the incentive? What does the, um, obviously like it's all economic and yeah, I don't really understand it, but by, by encouraging people to leave, who does that benefit and how does it benefit them? It usually happens at times of kind of great economic stress or in recessions and there's always a correlation with it. The idea is that the state doesn't want to pay unemployment benefit, you know, ad infinitum, which wasn't going to happen anyway. You need those people to stay, but it's, it's a, from the, from the, from independence to kind of the 1980s, it was a lot of things, you know, there was like protectionism and stuff like that in the 1930s. We'd had like a land war with, with Britain where we wouldn't pay them. It was an economic war, essentially. So Ireland went through a huge kind of economic turmoil all the way up until uh, really the 1990s um, when they kind of embraced, you know, neoliberalism and market deregulation. And because of the, the European Union as well, joining the European Union, turned their, their, um, their uh, fortunes around. But, I suppose ultimately, like, sorry, I'm trying to, I was trying to formulate an answer there, like why they did it. I'm trying to think now, you know, what happened was they, they stopped in the 1980s and the 1990s building um, social housing and basically started to adopt that kind of neoliberal thing where they, they didn't start making provisions for the future through social programs, whether it be in healthcare, whether it be in housing, they basically try to outsource all of those things to private companies. So instead of actually pushing forward a program of public housing where everybody could be housed, they started to push forward a program of home ownership, very much like a Thatcher kind of area in the 1980s. So then they wanted to do that. You know, they wanted to privatize water and stuff. And, you know, all of these things that Thatcher tried in the 1980s, they tried to do that in Ireland. So when the crash happened, there wasn't enough social housing there was housing in the wrong, they built lots of housing, but they built it in the wrong areas. Cause so essentially it's planning for the future. They allowed the private market essentially to plan towns and to plan for the future. And the private market doesn't actually care about people. The private market cares about making money. So it puts houses in places where you don't need them. It doesn't actually build ecosystems around towns, you know, so they used to do a bit of town planning, even like, but they did it. It was always done badly anyway, but at least they did it. They, you know, there was places like where I grew up in Tala, which was huge uh, town planning, uh, an infrastructural project in the 1970s, still underdeveloped. It took years for all the other amenities to be put in. You know, they built the houses first and then they put the amenities later. But at least they were building social housing back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And then in the 1990s, they stopped. So when the crash hit in 2000s, there was no houses. We had an over-reliance on uh, service industry jobs. Manufacturing, you know, was all from foreign direct investment. They were still around and stuff. But, you know, a lot of indigenous uh, industries and a lot of it was built on building they put all their eggs in a boom basket so when the building boom collapsed with the banking collapse there was no jobs for all these builders highly skilled workers and the rest of the world needed them uh so the government essentially just kind of encouraged them to go you know it was like well there's nothing here for you you go we'll fix the economy and then you come back in 15 years time but they didn't they fixed the economy for for people what you call like the contented classes you know people like themselves you know who can get on well like for anyone else you know, it's, it's the, the, the divide between kind of uh, rich and poor has kind of increased, you know. Sorry, I didn't know I was going to go into a whole kind of... No, thing. that's <laughs> so great. I was actually trying to... I was like, I do have an idea about this. <laughs> I, 
And you do. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like hey, what? as opposed to seeing like a kind of stuttering kind of like, I don't know, <laughs> economic uh, whatever. Yeah. What I'm wondering, after the crash, since the crash, um, and you know, and sort of they sent people off and um, there was the promise of we'll rebuild the economy, has, has yeah. since, because the crash didn't hit Australia really in the same way that it did I other countries. That. Yeah. It was like, yeah. It's weird. Um, but I'm wondering, has, uh, I mean, you sort of just said it hasn't there, but I was wondering if privatization and neoliberalism have faltered or stopped after the crash because isn't everyone like, we don't fucking trust this whole privatization thing anymore? Like, aren't people like, fuck yeah. this, this is what fucks it's, us? It's weird, you know what I mean? It's kind of like they say they want, here's the thing about privatization, with, especially in Ireland, you have people who are supposedly fiscally, fiscally conservative, they just don't want the responsibility of infrastructure. So they privatized the bins first, like bin collection and dumping went up, you know, and people kind of constantly is a push towards, indiv- it's, it's all about the primacy of the individual and the primacy of individual responsibility. And this is one of the things that Thatcher and Hayek and all these kind of thinkers who push that uh, ideology forward. So they have they feel that if you pay more taxes, you have, should have more say. And really, a lot of these kind of right-wing governments, they just don't want to pay taxes and they want to reduce the amount of taxes that people pay. So if there's a service that they think they could pay for, they don't want to pay for it for someone else. Yeah. So, and a lot of the time as well, local governments privatized bin collection because they were just like, I just don't want to deal with that. But they would say, oh, we're actually doing it because it's more efficient. It increases um, people's responsibility towards the environment. It increases, uh, you know, our, what, what would you call it? Like what we owe the environment. I don't know what, you, what, what word I'm searching for, but actually all the time, that's never the reason. The reason they're always doing it is about just getting it off the books, getting it off the books. And, I, and the thing with the privatization of water was a huge galvanizing thing after the crash in Ireland. It was something everybody could, everybody kind of coalesced around, especially on the left, because people on the left seen it as a kind of two-fisted hand grab for the resources, the natural resources of Ireland, which had happened in places like Argentina, which happened in lots of South American countries, uh, Bolivia, I think, and Peru, you know, they privatized the water systems. And then ultimately they said that their goal was, especially in Ireland, that they wanted to privatize the water system and then sell it off. And they put that on their website and then they took it down. And people were like, well, hold on a second. You said this was about improving the infrastructure of Ireland. It's not. The reason they wanted a separate body, a separate entity is that, Irish Water as an entity, a non-governmental entity, could borrow money on the bond market. So they want, they thought, they said they wanted people to pay for that. But actually what it was doing was it was kind of creating a type of apartheid. So a poor person, you know, might not be able to have a shower. You know what I mean? If they really are poor, like right now, like there's a crash. So we had a fully privatized water. You would have a lot of people that would have had a very hard time paying water bills. So you would have people who were deciding between how much water they can consume and how much water they should use. Whereas let's say a company like Facebook, they were always trying to say, oh, it's about conservation. It's not about conservation. If you wanted to do a law about conserving water, you would put restrictions on the amount of water people could use. There'd be a five minute restrictor on your shower. There'd be a five minute, like, you know, a restrictor on your tap, all this kind of stuff. But the idea they were pushing was you can have as much water as you want, as long as you can pay for it. So what happens is, that's actually just water apartheid. That means like company like Facebook could turn the taps on for a year and then turn them off. And then at the end, they wouldn't get fined. They just get a bill. 
that's not conservation and that was the thing that people were trying to on the left trying to explain whereas people on the right were trying to paint anybody that didn't want to pay for water as you know the unwashed masses of you know like unemployed dull scroungers that wanted everything for free whereas actually people on the left were advocating for the idea that this is a really terrible idea Water privatization, the Financial Times did, a, did an article about it in 2017 that said, far from bringing about efficiency of the British water system, it's actually just, uh, it's turned out, it's just a huge, massive cash grab. So when you have a private entity and not a public entity looking after a natural resource, you get only half the money going towards keeping the infrastructure and the resource working efficiently and the rest of the money, i.e. the profits, going towards the shareholders. So if there's shareholders that need to be paid and shareholders that need to be enriched, the money that should be actually all being cycled back into the infrastructure goes all the way back into the infrastructure. It doesn't go to any shareholders. Mm-hmm. And usually when a company is privatized, which is what happened in Ireland, a guy called who has many kind of industries, he, one of his subsidiaries got the contract and it was a company that had no, it was bankrupt. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it won the contract. And everybody on the board of that company got a 5 million euro windfall. So everybody was like, hold on a second. What's going on here? Now, there's a, I can't say too much about it because you know, I could get sued. But there is an investigation into that ongoing. What's going on nearly six years? So what happens is, usually when there's a privatization of a resource, the only people that make money of it are the people who are close to the company that wins the contract. And what's actually happened now and this is something we were at pains to kind of explain to all these right-wing nutjobs who are going, you just don't want to pay for anything. The majority of companies and countries and cities around Europe that privatized their water systems, Berlin being the most high profile, they have now renationalized their water systems. Wow. So that kind of neoliberal argument that this brings better efficiency, this brings better kind of quality is nonsense. So yeah. what happens is it's called infinite impact. It's where a very small number of individuals in the present make a decision in the present that has infinite impact on every generation that lives in a republic or a biosphere for till the end of days. And the point I was always trying to make with anybody who said, why are you against this? I said, it's not just about the fact that it's a new tax. I said, someone said to me, well, if you get on the bus, you know, you have to pay every time you get on the bus. I said, it's a false equivalence. And I said, and anybody making that argument obviously doesn't understand a basic aspect of human physiology. If I don't get on the bus for three days, nothing happens. If I don't drink water for three days, I die. So I said, you don't seem to get that this is an existential threat, not just to us, but to every generation that lives on this island forever. Because the way Ireland is, once we sold it off, we would never get it back. Mm -hmm. Because it's incredibly, in the late 1970s, 1975, to think that within 10 years, the majority of nationalized post-World War II nationalized industries in Britain, for example, could be privatized was almost, was untenable, unfeasible, and unimaginable. But within 10 years, they privatized everything in a fire sale. And it didn't bring about better efficiency. It brought about worse train times. It brought about lower water quality. They've been sued by their environmental agencies for not basically looking after the rivers. And it just, it never works. So for us, like that kind of battle towards privatization and privatization of natural resources was such a, uh, a lightning rod, a galvanizing lightning rod, you know? Because, you know, yeah. you can burn down all the trees, but you're always like, you're going to need water as much as you need air. And they just, yeah. they didn't get that. 
And they yeah. literally just tried to keep on saying that it was like people not wanting to pay for anything, you know? Yeah. So anyway, that's my, this, <laughs> that's that, my, that's I my feel like that, um, that, that whole situation for me, like as you're describing it almost sounds and, and the way that, um, that right wing people were guilting people and being like, you know, you know, you're yeah. just, you don't want to pay for the water, blah, 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 that, that guilt thing and that individualization and all that thing. Uh, for me, that's reminiscent of, the global discussion about climate change and the way that governments and corporations put it on us to buy reusable cups and, you know, we should use these sorts of bags, you know, and it's, 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 they're like shifting the blame. It's, it's, it's again, it's that thing of the primacy of the individual because if they know that, and if the guardian did it, don't get me wrong that we, we live along, we live alongside, you know, cheap ideal corporations. We buy their products. We like in many respects, you live in one society and you can't, there is no other society you can live in. Mm. So often like people will go, what's your, what's your, you know, idea communist. And I'm like, I'm not like, I'm not a communist democratic socialist. And you go, look, there's only one society. If you don't earn money, like life tokens, you die. You don't have an option. There isn't, you know, people go, I'm counterculture. It's like, you're not, even if you want to go off grid, and go into the woods, you know, and live, fucking you know i know drinking your own piece or whatever you know at some stage you might need a hammer and you're gonna have to go back into the town and buy a hammer and then instantaneously you're plugged back into the matrix do you know what i mean you've changed goods over for fucking services blah 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 so the idea that any of us can live outside of that culture that we have been born into is just not feasible and also it's it's it can't happen but that doesn't mean that we can't advocate for a world in the future that doesn't have such a heavy reliance on, you know, disposable things like plastics and, and so forth, not plastic, but disposable plastics and stuff. So the whole kind of thing around even recycling is just about kind of keeping that business going. You know what I mean? It's not, yeah. and it's always like, well, you need to recycle. Whereas the guardian wrote a, an article recently said, I think it's 71 or maybe 80% of all the pollution that's going. No, I think I'm doing it the other around. Something like 80% of all the pollution that's going into the environment is caused by literally 71 corporations. Yeah. Or, yeah. I've, I've read so that you know, article. It's, like, it's crazy. Yeah, so it's like that yeah. thing of pushing it onto the individuals. And then people say, well, then you need to stop consuming the things. They go, okay, yeah, that, that is true. We do. But also they need to stop exactly. creating such pollution at the same time. You know what yeah. I mean? So, and yeah. The other, and it's like, fuck, okay, I'll, I'll try to stop consuming that product by that company. But then there's this one and that one. And it's like, yeah. eventually you'd be left with nothing. Like I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm wearing a Nike jumper at the moment. Like yeah, it's yeah, impossible yeah. to be in this society and not be um, exploiting someone just in the things that you buy. And the, yeah. you know, if you eat corn chips, you, you're killing the orangutans environment or whatever. And totally. that's yeah. not the individual's response. That re, re, yeah. That's not their responsibility. It's not their fault. Well, see, yeah. It's that thing, you know, so I know I've heard another side of this argument that people like, you know, it is all down to the individual. But if someone's hungry and they're poor, and let's say there's a yogurt that's cheap and it's the only thing really that's in their budget, is it their fault that you put four levels of packaging on that? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Cardboard, yeah. plastic, foil, something else and, and sometimes even there's another cellophane wrap around the fucking four yogurts there's no need for that so it is yeah. about kind of us as convenience what's convenient to us but often a lot of these things you know you can go to the they only exist in places like new york or whatever you know what i mean you don't have that option to go to the, to the farmer's market learn the farmer's yeah. market the, you know, the co-op that doesn't use plastic and everything yeah. is reusable and also you may not have the money yeah. to shop there yeah so a lot of the time 
living an ethical life in terms of the environment is really something that's preserved of people that are of means. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and, 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 they, and then, and guilting people into, you know, fast fashion. Maybe you can only afford fast fashion. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, so there's a constant kind of thing of like guilting poor people for basically making poor people choices. You know what I mean? And it's like, fucking, you know, and it's not, and then, and then at the same time, giving corporations a free card to continue to do what they do and not, and not go, okay, well, look, you need to maybe not do this. You know what I mean? Like, or yeah. bringing proper regulations, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that gets done a lot and it's, I think it's a big thing in Melbourne where I live. Um, there's yeah. like there's a suburb in Melbourne. It's like quite a famous suburb called Fitzroy. And oh, it's, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's like, it used to be like, you know, the, the pinnacle of a working class suburb. And now it's, it's the most trendy, like hipster. It's, it's the trendiest place you can be on earth. Anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the whole, the whole essence of that suburb to me is like, upper class people dressing up kind of like they're rough and poor and then um it's poverty poverty cosplay it is it is it really That's is. What it is yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's yeah. a bizarre suburb and everything about that every cafe is you know biodegradable this that every um everything has you know, oh, this is a dog friendly. Everything's like about the community, and the, it's a dog friendly cafe. You can bring your pet dog in. But I don't know yeah. if the if the if the junkie with his pit bull dog came into the cafe, would he be allowed to bring his pet dog in as well? I don't know if it's. Yeah. It just has that yeah, feel yeah. about it. It's this weird, unbalanced thing. I don't know. It's a strange. It's kind of like yeah. I want to, you know, I'll do something. I want. I want to help. Yeah, you, you know, it's like that thing. If you, I want to help people, but oh no, not that that yeah. awful kind of poor person. I want to exactly. help deserving poor people. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of thing of there's, you know, like it's this fetishization again of neoliberal theory where it's like this, this kid, he basically cut lawns. So the community got together and they bought him a new lawnmower, <laughs> you know, it's like, or, or they could have given him and his mother who he's working, who's sick. Dude, I remember seeing the meme and it's like his mother's sick. So he went out to cut grass and they're like, could have given his mother free healthcare <laughs> and free fucking access to free medication and, and basically ameliorated the worst excesses of poverty that he's going through as opposed to worsening this kid's fucking thing, getting him a lawnmower and turning him into a fucking child laborer. You know what I mean? And it's like, like they, and if you, if I, I know there's so many right wingers in this country who would go, yeah, you're fucking, you're afraid of hard work. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm just like pointing out the fact that this kid wouldn't be in this fucking situation if like yeah. i know it's just a meme but it's jesus christ the fetishization of laborious hard work is and yeah. like, people are only deserving of charity if they have literally worked their fucking fingers to the bone you know yeah. what i mean it's so frustrating um i've got a good this is a good real life example of it um there was a like a sort of uh like a terrorist act in melbourne a couple of years ago where a guy um I can't remember the details of it, but it was, it, it was just like, uh, you know, one of those horrible things that, you know, you see. And um, he was like running around trying to stab people. There was a homeless man in particular who got his trolley and like whacked the guy with it and, and defended yeah. these, these people and, and sort of protected them. And, and then there was this big thing on the internet of like, this homeless man is a hero and all this stuff. And there was a huge yeah. 
crowdfunding thing and people raised all this money for him <laughs> yeah he ended up getting heaps of money which is great and good on him and you know he protected those people but it's just like such a bizarre thing of like if you're a homeless person you can only will only give you money if you literally if you, save people's lives <laughs> it's like that's what you have to do to yeah like, well it's it's, it's yeah it's like that kind of thing of like i worked what i have it's like yeah you have but it is that thing of poverty is actually pretty you know if if there was fair to you know the kind of the the disparity between you know as i say like the top one percent it could be eradicated literally yeah. tomorrow but it is you have to go cap in hand. There's a performative thing that poor people have to do where they have to fucking not grovel, but kind of be deserving, be worthy. There's good, bad, there's good poor people and bad poor people, but also they cast all poor people with this kind of morality that, you know, if you are poor, you have failed. And if you are poor, you are not just a failure economically, you are a moral failure. You know what I mean? There's a morality that's put into kind of, um, to poverty, which everything about kind of any major religion in the world, the teaching is the complete opposite of that. You know what I mean? Like money is yeah. something to be shunned. Money is something that shouldn't be. It's like prosperity ideology, whatever that nonsense is. You know what I mean? And it's yeah, it's a hindrance to the world because it's like there are people that are deserving of people who aren't. And and what happens is if they find a story about one person who is gaming the system, what they'll do is they'll punish the 99% for the bad behavior of the 1%. So the analogy, not the analogy, the anomaly becomes the analogy for the whole, Yeah. you know, yeah. all of a sudden everybody is on the make. Yeah. Everybody's gaming the system yeah. when actually it's not like that at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. People are hard, falling on hard times, you know? Yeah. I mean, okay. I've, I've taken Sorry, I know you had loads of questions. <laughs> no, 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 we can keep, I know there's loads of questions. We can bash Judy's like, so I don't mind. And we were like, we kind of went on a lot of tangents. I know, but it's First so off, about, good. About that's my, about my travels. I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. I was like, I just sat down and told you about my travels as a man in the 20s. so good. You know? It's so good. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Um, all right. Well, this, okay. I want to talk about Dublin old school. Can we do that? Oh yeah. I fucking loved it. Um, oh, I, nice one. maybe like be cool for the listeners. Maybe if you sort of explain a little bit what Dublin old school is, is to you, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so I wrote Dublin old school six years ago. Now I wrote it as a play and, uh, I, it is a play. It's very much uh, like that. It's a piece of theater. And, I was doing a play with another guy, another actor, uh, Ian Lloyd Anderson, who was in, in this, uh, it was in the film. And myself and Ian had worked in theatre quite extensively and we'd worked a lot together on a number of shows. And we were working in the, the Abbey, which is the National Theatre in Ireland. And um, it's, you know, a lot of history and famous kind of place, you know, like that where the play by the Western World is the first place and Play on the Stars, all these plays years ago were put on, 100 years ago. And, um, so we were sharing a dressing room and we were doing what the Abbey does a lot at the time was these kind of brilliantly um, staged, very uh, eloquent and, and beautiful productions of old plays. So we were doing a production of Major Barber by George Bernard Shaw and he's another Irish writer. And uh, we were just kind of like going, 
I don't think we were in the third act. We were kind of have these parts that were basically main parts and the not main parts, but good parts in the second act, and we show up and then we don't come back on stage. These great gigs, you know what I mean? They do like an hour's work a night, you know what I mean? And then you're like <laughs> sitting there playing fucking boggled or whatever. And uh, not that we did. Uh, Yahtzee, Yahtzee, that's what we did. Um, so yeah, we're sitting there and it was like, we had kind of come off the back of it. We'd done one big, huge production called Alice in Funderland. I think there's a poster up there. Can you see? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the actually see the thing that's missing there. That's uh, there's a missing frame. This <laughs> I didn't actually have this. This was happening yesterday. I was hoovering behind that wardrobe, and the picture of Dublin All School the play fell down. Ah, cool. And, and it, it hit me in the head. <laughs> so the frame cracked on my head. So that's the that's the poster of the original production. Uh, yeah, it's, you see I've there, seen that's it actually, online. It's great. Yeah, poster. that's you know, like that's like so you see how much kind of Ian lost, for the film. Ian lost like he lost like two stone. Yeah, he did a proper yeah. De Niro on it, you know, for the film. Because <laughs> uh, so yeah, so what happened? So I said to Ian, I was like, look, I'd really like to do something very similar to Alice in Wonderland, which was done by a company called This Is Pop Baby, who we brought, who also brought that show to Sydney Festival, uh, brought Riot. So I'd worked with Philip before, who's a friend of mine from Dublin Youth Theatre. I've known him since he was 16. And they have a company called This Is Pop Baby that do all these like really vibrant uh, shows that celebrate kind of, not they do, they celebrate queer culture, you know, uh, they celebrate like leftist like, culture, they celebrate club culture, they celebrate music, dance music. And, and it's, it's just fucking brilliant theatre, you know, that's really pushing the boundaries of what Irish theatre could be. And they done that show, Alice in Wonderland in the Abbey, which was kind of cool, kind of blew out the cobwebs a bit, but it was a big kind of musical about a girl that goes through a kind of fucking acid trip through Dublin, you know? Cool. And uh, Wonderland is a, is, a, is, a, is a big, huge kind of, uh, uh, it's a huge fair that comes to Dublin every Christmas, you know, so it's kind of a thing. So it's called Alice in Wonderland. So we worked on that. And I was like, look, I'd really love to go back and do something like that was like has energy and is modern, you know, is contemporary. Yeah. So I said, the next thing that I write, because I'd done Sarah and Steve at that stage and he liked Sarah and Steve. And I was like, he goes, would you not write like another thing? Sarah and Steve was like, well, I was like, I did write the second series and then RT turned it down. <laughs> so there was a few ideas in Sarah and Steve that probably made it in the second series that would have been Sarah and Steve made it into Dublin All School. So I said, I goes, I'm going to write something that's contemporary and it's going to be fast, and it's going to be fucking quick, and it's going to be whatever. So um, I'll send you a link, actually, to the stage show. It's, I'm not allowed to put it online, but I'll send you a link. Uh, they recorded it in 2015. Oh, cool. So I wrote something that was, the first 10 minutes is all told through hip-hop, and like completely true verse. And so he had to learn how to rap. And uh, at the time, he was doing, he was rehearsing a play with Marco Rowe and Kieran Hines. Uh, he was doing a play with Kieran Hines, a really, he's, plays the bad guy in Justice League. That's not his biggest. He's in he's in Munich <laughs> and he's in the sub office. He's in multiple other things. He, was, he played the night he played the the King of the North in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Eno was doing a play with him and he was at all these like so then he was rehearsing this show with me during the day. <laughs> this weird show that he was <laughs> like rapping. and I remember him going, It's it's fucking inverse. It's like and I was like, yeah. I goes, you're gonna have to learn how to rap and he was like, Oh, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do this. And I was like I kind of lent, I was like, shut your fucking mouth. I was like, you're doing it. <laughs> kind of bullied him into it. And then, um, and then his missus actually told him as well. He kind of came home. He's like, I don't think I can do this play. And his missus was like, shut the fuck up. You're doing it. <laughs> so me and his missus kind of done a pinch at me on him <laughs> and, and bullied him into doing in the play. So 
he did that and it actually it was great because I, I hadn't actually finished it but we started rehearsing before he was doing this play with Kieran Hines and Marco Rowe who's in the film Marco Rowe's a playwright and he's in the film Dublin Old School he's the guy with the cat yeah <laughs> um, Marco Rowe is a playwright as well and he's from my neighbourhood and he wrote a film called uh, Intermission which is also another great Irish film you'd love it uh, yeah. if you can get your hands on it Colin Meany's yeah. in it and Colin Farrell great film uh, really great script so <clears throat> he was doing that and he was helping me out during the day so it took like nine weeks I was writing it over the course of like nine months but it wasn't there and then Philip the director came in so it's a mix between hip hop spoken word and then the brother scenes are almost verbatim of what they are in the film so we did it originally in a in a cafe to about 50 people Whoa. and it was all kind of like flying by the seat of our pants you know and we got I got a mate of mine to to do beats for it and then another friend uh, did a lighting or did like sound design on it and it was like three lights or whatever and we did it and it got really great reviews and it transferred down to the project which is the main theatre in Dublin for independent theatre outside of the gate in the Abbey and they did they produced it the second run uh, sorry it was originally produced for the Dublin, theater, Dublin Fringe Festival and it was kind of part of this thing called Show in a Bag which was a you know writers would write their show and they could go around the country with it but I was the only one that did a two-hander that year because I didn't really want to do a single monologue play because a lot of plays in the Irish canon especially during the 90s because of financial reasons were monologue plays that kind of storytelling thing we were talking about yeah, earlier yeah, about, the, yeah. um, about in terms of like Irish like people that you know, the great storytellers Sean O's and stuff like that and so I kind of wanted something that was very theatrical and could only take place on a theatrical state on a stage so it kind of shifted time it was there was time travel elements in it there was fantasy elements in it all that was taken out for the film <laughs> obviously <laughs> film board were like what you know the original play is a time loop that he's stuck in he's kind of stuck in a weekend that kind of keeps on looping and essentially you're kind of seeing the, the, the penultimate version of the loop where he figures out oh I'm in a time loop I need to get out of it because uh, he's living the same weekend again and again and again and um, so it ends with 10 minutes of rapping and then about five minutes of rapping at the end where they kind of wrapped their way over. It's, it sounds less cringy than it is. <laughs> <You> know, <like laughs> two white lads like from Dublin fucking rapping. <laughs> uh, and then there's kind of spoken word elements in it. And yeah, it was just this kind of, you know, fucking acid trip through Dublin or whatever, you know, to, like taking in all the sights and sounds. Yeah. And, and then he kind of bumps into his brother and stuff. And I, I originally wanted to write it because I wanted to write something that was... I remember all those stories of kind of people in my twenties and not stories, but that kind of subculture. And I remember thinking, this is such a great story and such a great subculture. And I'd seen other people try to capture it. And I was like, I reckon I could capture this as a time capsule kind of thing. So there's a kind of a record of it. So it was a record of a subculture that existed that most people didn't know existed. Not most yeah. people, but people outside of it uh, wouldn't know or even would challenge that it exists. That's a real thing that happens with, with dance music and subcultures. They go, nobody talks like that. Nobody goes on like that. Nobody does, you know, nobody uh, uh, consumes. I remember when the film came out, someone was like, <laughs> I like, prefixed the reviews like, I'm not from Dublin and I've never taken drugs, but I don't believe that this could happen. You know, it's like, fucking, it's, you literally that, just like, that's the worst thing, you know. It's like, that doesn't, you didn't shut the fuck up. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, so, yeah, so the play went from, to the project and it had a sellout run and then we did it again and a year later and then we went to Edinburgh and then I got loads of great reviews in Edinburgh and then the people in the National Theatre in Britain seen it and they brought it to the National Theatre in Britain and that was huge because wow. I think it was like the first 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 play 
by an Irish author to be performed in the national in 20 years. The last one was Enda Walsh with Disco Pigs. Um, Enda Walsh also wrote the Irish film Hunger and loads of other plays. He's an incredible, compatible playwright. So I was like, really? Oh my God, this is amazing. So we did it in the Dorfman Theatre in the National. It's like 500 people, modern state-of-the-art theatre. Look, at it, it's like a Borg cube. And Whoa. we did it for a week in London and it sold out within like two days. And the, the Saturday night um, of the final night, this is about 2017, 2018, the Saturday night, uh, a load of Irish people who, as we were talking earlier about the immigration thing, all these people that would have left in 2008, 2009, 10 years later, all these people that I knew, you know, they were all there. And wow. like English, West End is very prim, you know, proper like, and uh, <laughs> the Dorfman is like four levels of, of people, you know, so you're like looking up all around and there's this great, no, there's this line in it that says, you know, it feels like every young person that ever listened to dance music you know, and every person that ever listened to dance music in Ireland is here right now. Uh, you know, I was looking up into the thing and all you hear is all these like Irish heads going, <laughs> yeah, good up, how it's that? And then like, I got skeet, 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 you know, like, like kind of things they'd shout at raves. And I could just see all these English people in the audience going, <laughs> fucking monocles falling out, you know, like, you know. Uh, well, there's the really evidence funny, right uh, there that the culture did exist, if anyone wanted did, to yeah. challenge that. It's, it's, Absolutely. It's, and it was here. just, I was just like, I was so, that was kind of, that was a really kind of, I suppose, cathartic kind of like theatrical moment on stage. So cool. That was where, it, and then, and then while that was going on, there was, um, Dave Tynan and the producers were kind of, you know, look, we can get this made into a film. And I was like, yeah, right. And they literally said, we're in a pub called the Bernard Shaw, which is a huge kind of, it was, well, it was a landmark until it got fucking sold off recently to, to build another poxy hotel. And um, they saw, yeah, so they met me there at Christmas and they were like, we can get this into cinemas in 18 months. And I was like, right. Oh. And they did, they did that. We wrote the, wrote the film. Um, we made it and we shot it. And yeah, like the film was mental. You know what I mean? There's loads of stuff in the film that didn't wind up in the film, but the film is kind of, I like it because it's so kind of out there and it, it's it crazy. Kinda, it, it oscillates between family drama and kind of like screwball comedy. And like people were like <laughs> tonally. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. um so in in dublin old school um two brothers and one aspect of the story is that that one of the brothers is is really into ketamine and um and sort of having this crazy party weekend the other brother is homeless and um heroin is more his vice yeah i feel like in the film for me, it was like, oh, uh, like one of these drugs is like you can do it at parties and people don't mind that you're doing it. But but he seems like he's falling apart, the guy that's doing ketamine, yeah. but it's accepted in a way. Whereas the homeless guy, um, his his addiction isn't as accepted. Is that like was that an important thing for you to depict, I suppose? Yeah, I think like I I as a teacher, you know, like I, I taught in my twenties and I kind of, in a lot of different places, like I taught with kind of probation services and, and drug rehabilitation clinics and stuff like that. And like, and, and just even in my own <clears throat> area, heroin was a big, a big thing when I grew up, like a lot of people got addicted to heroin and it was a hop, skip and a jump for the first generation of kind of people in the early nineties. They were all going to raves 
and they were taking ecstasy and yolks or ecstasy was quite a new drug back in the early 90s you know in dublin so people weren't they weren't particularly knowledgeable about the various different types of drugs and what each drug did mm. so some people sourced introduction to heroin they may never have even seen a film representation of it and they certainly hadn't seen any in their local neighborhood because a lot of the heroin addicts had either passed away or it had fallen out of fashion in Dublin. So a lot of them had kind of, they stumbled into it. And it's kind of mentioned in the film, you know, he goes, he has that speech about kind of someone was at a party and just went, do you want to try some heroin? And they thought it would be a good way of bringing them down in the same way people might take, you know, uh, sleepers or something like that, you know, after part, like a lot of, you know, it's a big thing in England now. There's a lot of, yeah, I was I was reading a report. You know, a lot of people taking these Xanax bars. Yeah, you know, which is um, it's really it's dangerous. Problem. Yeah, it's yeah. really dangerous because like they're, they're they're just pressed in a fucking in some weird like fucking shed out of back garden, and they're just like they're they're a mixture of all these other fucking things. But kids are kids are taking them like they're taking like fifty fucking at a time and stuff. Yeah. You know, like real, yeah. real, and they're not even Xanax. Like they're fucking diazepam, whatever shite they're putting. Yeah. So it was a similar kind of thing back then. People were in a more extreme version were taking heroin to come down. Now, obviously, as people became educated about heroin when they seen the the really bad effects of it, you know, they stopped, and uh, and it it didn't take as many people. But what happened was it really only proliferated in areas of social deprivation. You know, middle class kids wouldn't do heroin because it wasn't there. It wasn't in their neighbourhoods. You know, um, but. There was, so there's a real kind of attitude, as we're saying earlier, about the deserving poor people and non-deserving poor people. You were saying about your man coming into the cafe with his dog. Would he be allowed to sit there with the hipsters or would he be like, oh, yeah. no, you know. So there was deserving drug addicts and non-deserving drug addicts. So when I was writing the script, um, I needed to find, I was like thinking about, I was like, well, what's a drug that I've read about that is disassociative and almost mirrors heroin's kind of influence and ketamine is quite like that you know and i remember you know there was people kind of getting strung out on ketamine but like it wasn't it was a weird thing because it's not like heroin in the sense that there's a sickness involved in it you know you could still i'd see people do it and then get up and go to work you know but like they didn't have any kind of stigma around it you know what i mean it was the same with all those kind of middle class drugs you know they were doing mostly not middle class 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 does have something to do with it, but it shouldn't be, it's not exclusively. What I mean by that is, is that one of the great things about kind of dance music was the ability, and it's mentioned in the film, to bring people from all the classes together. And I think people in dance culture really understood that there's some drugs you can do that wouldn't have such a kind of life-ending consequence, and there's other ones that would. And a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in politics would kind of have this absolutely, you know, disgusted kind of idea of people who'd fallen... Um, not fall into such you don't fall into addiction, but I don't know, like you know, have basically become addicted to heroin, but they wouldn't necessarily have that same opinion of people, you know, in high-powered jobs doing cocaine, you know, yeah. that kind of way. So yeah. it was about that hypocrisy. So I kind yeah. of just wanted to point out that kind of hypocrisy. So I suppose that's what I mean about middle-class drugs. You know, one is one, yeah. is, definitely, yeah. and it is. It's like it's 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 that hypocrisy is fucking everywhere and yeah, yeah. over here it's, it's like, like you can have vo- you can have voices but as long as they're rich exactly you have voices, yeah exactly you're a fucking drain on society totally. you know what i mean like, totally like, yeah. 
enjoyed this chat so much. I've taken oh, up so much of your time. Um, no, you're right. Do you have an artist that you'd like to recommend to people listening? Any? Is, can you think of anyone? I think, yeah, I you know what it is because I think, like you know, it's a comedy podcast. They could listen to you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass this out. Well, no, actually, I've been watching your videos, man. It's really great stuff. Like it's really ah, funny. Thank you. I really love it. I love the stories you tell and it, like the. The, uh, the Instagram ones, um, I looked at uh, the one about the origin of, was it Lucy in the Sky or the yeah, Beatles song? Was, yeah, was it? it was, um, hey here, come, here Comes the Sun and Hey Jude. Here Comes yeah, the Sun yeah. and Hey Jude, yeah. <laughs> uh, So Thank I loved you, those man. kind of ones. Yeah, it's really great, man. Really great. Thanks. Uh, so yeah, people should check you. All the Irish people, when I, I'll repost it later. I'll tell ah, you. that's lovely. Um, Thanks, Emma. Absolutely, they should, yeah. If you really like, find that, yeah. um, that guy, uh, I was saying earlier, Peter McCann, Waterford Whispers, uh, there's a guy on Instagram called Tony Horror. There's another Irish uh, um, comedian, as I was saying earlier, Hugh Cooney. Uh, he's really brilliant. Cool. Um, uh, the Hardy Books, that's a good Irish show. Um, what else? There's loads of other stuff. There's loads of other great kind of comedians, you know, all kind of odd stuff, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Gareth Regan, he's another good comedian. And, uh, Who's your favourite comedian? I like, I really love Dylan Morgan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, don't tell him different fucking. I'm mixing up two fucking names there. Sorry, the guy who was the lead actor in Father Ted was uh, his second name was Morgan. Um, oh, I Dylan thought you said Moran. Dylan Moran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah Dylan Moran. Yeah. So Dylan Moran used to be well, he still is, you know. But like, I loved his stand up, and I just He's loved brilliant. the way, yeah, and just kind of the way he would string jokes together, and uh, yeah, he's really, really good. There's oh, um, uh, there's also an Irish comedian called Joanne McNally yeah and she's that, uh, she, she's doing good you can follow her on Instagram she's been doing loads of great stories all the way through uh, lockdown she's just really funny she's a mate like I've known her for a few years but she's uh, she's really funny very clever uh, very smart but um, yeah cool. she's brilliant uh, she does like really funny like Instagram stories Just and a lot of it again is that self-deprecating stuff that yeah you know, yeah she's, yeah she's mad she's mad <laughs> <laughs> and, and how kind of mad she is not in the kind of hey oh mad crack I am you know full time she's just like very uh, yeah it's very very funny stuff so Joanne McNally she's on Instagram and she's doing really well in the UK as well she's doing great stuff you know? yeah I've definitely heard her name alright that's cool I'll put all of those names in the description for the podcast I'll let you go thank you no, so much man. for chatting Listen, to thanks. me I'll speak to you soon thank you I'll so much I'll talk to you soon mate no worries